The Craft Food Classroom is a comprehensive and in-depth five-part online, go-at-your-own-pace course that will provide everything needed to build a thriving food business. Each module includes a video, presentation, workbook, and quiz. This course teaches students exactly what they need to know to succeed in the craft food industry and avoid pitfalls and costly mistakes. Learn more at thecentral.kitchen/classroom and you can use podcast21 at checkout for 10% off anytime. Again, that code is podcast21 for 10% off. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. the opportunity to talk to Jordan Buckner, founder of Food Bevy, a community dedicated to helping CPG brands launch and grow their businesses. They provide a directory, some great education, special promotions and deals to help brands connect, learn, and scale. In this interview, Jordan and I focus on the common mistakes brands make in the areas of distribution, marketing, and manufacturing. Jordan shared a painful and costly mistake he made that made it tough for him to move from a commercial kitchen to a co-packer once he was ready and how you can avoid making that same mistake. He also shares tips on how to speak to get a buyer's attention by speaking their language and focusing on their goals and their metrics instead of your own goals and your own product. Jordan is a fountain of knowledge based on his experience and the combined experiences of his entire Food Bevy community. You won't want to miss this episode. Enjoy. All right. Hey, Jordan, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for jumping on with me. Thanks so much. Yeah. Hey, let's kick right into it. I I know sort of in the pre-show, me and you were chatting and we've got a lot to cover, so let's not waste any time. Do you have a quote in mind that you could share with the audience? Definitely. It's a little thing that stuck with me for years now, but I had a previous boss, her name's Michelle Hayward, and she had this quote that said, turn up the gain and turn down the pain. And what that really means is, right, like work with the people willing to work with you in your business and mm-hmm. fire the people who cause headaches and just make life worse. Huh, I, I really like that. And that could even include not, not only employees or coworkers or whatever, but it could also be customers, right? Like uh, sometimes you get stuck with some pretty painful customers. Definitely. There's a lot of customers who ask for a lot, who push for a lot and just end up making your life so much harder. And so definitely even people who are paying you, sometimes you're better off letting go of that relationship if it's toxic. Right. Huh, so that's pretty interesting. I mean, do you have an example of a way that you've applied that uh, in your life? <laughs> yeah, definitely. You maybe don't share the names or whatever. But, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> well, yeah, I'll protect some of them. But with my CPG company, T-Square, so we ran, we were selling with a national distributor and there's a, a national retailer who was our kind of key account for that. And when we were selling to them, they you know, were buying a ton of product, we were shipping. And then after a few months, we tried like getting in touch, working with their marketing team to help the product move off the shelf. And mm-hmm. there are crickets coming from that. And what we realized is we started getting chargebacks from product expiring 
because it wasn't selling through. They were essentially mm-hmm. over-ordering. So I tried reaching out uh, through the distributor, through the retailer to say, hey, one, stop, you know, don't order as much product. And two, let us come in to help merchandise it, help market it out to your customers and couldn't get in touch with like a single person to do that. And after looking at the numbers, it turned out 30% of all the product that we sold them was returned to us. And mm-hmm. not only that, but I had to refund them the original cost for them just to dispose of the expired product. Yikes. And yeah. after that relationship or after that happened, we essentially told them we would not sell you any more product anymore and cut off that deal in that relationship. Well, and of course, you know, as a, a young, you know, scrappy company, you know, you're fighting for every bit of revenue you can. And so I'm sure that decision was pretty difficult. It was. And, you know, one thing that I learned as well, as you're growing, it's easy not to have those systems in place to track, you know, every chargeback and deduction and fee. But, you know, you really have to stay on top of those numbers so that you can see the reality of where things are and either make the decision to continue or make changes. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we could keep going down the train of thought. I do want to just go back a little bit, tell people who you are, give us a little bit about your background, your experience, and then hopefully that leads into your company, Food Bevy. And you can just tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah, excellent. I'll start a little bit at the end and work my way back in terms of how we got here. So I currently run foodbevy.com, which is an online platform and community to connect emerging food and beverage founders with the resources and partners they need to really grow and scale their businesses. And every day I talk with founders, understand what obstacles they're facing and help them overcome that. It's my dream job. I got here because I've been in the food industry for you know over a decade now. I ran uh, my own brand, T-Squares, which is a line of um, energy bars made with organic tea. We manufactured their own product. We launched in Whole Foods and grew that business. We were selling in Amazon. Learned a lot in terms of what worked in that business and what didn't have some really great successes. We pivoted to kind of sell into food service and corporate office channels. Ultimately, with the pandemic, uh, made the decision to shut down that business, but learn a ton in terms of what to do and what not to do from running a business. And a lot of people always ask me like how I became an entrepreneur in the first place. And actually, it's a little bit genetic because both of my <laughs> parents were entrepreneurs. A lot of my like my grandparents were entrepreneurs. And so it's something that's just always ran. Okay, cool, cool. So where are you from? Uh, where, where's your family from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Chicago, um, in the city there. And you know, had a ton of really great experiences there, kind of watching both of my parents growing their businesses growing up. You know, neither of my parents really had what you call like a stable office job necessarily. And so that's what I saw of always kind of seeing my parents solve problems and issues every day, which is what kind of led me down this path. Okay, cool. And then you're currently based in, in what, Madison, Wisconsin? Is that right? Currently based in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah, let's uh, let's dive into Food Bevy just a little bit more. So if you could explain us uh, again, you know, what, what it is and then who is like sort of your ideal client? Like who do you work with? Yeah, so Food Bevy, as I mentioned, is a community really to support founders as they're getting started and growing through the initial stages. And what typically happens is that founders will come to our community with an issue and saying, hey, I'm looking to grow my retail business, or I'm looking to find a contract manufacturer, or I'm looking to find investors. And we have solutions to help solve all of those. So for instance, we have a directory of over 400 retail and grocery buyers across the US, everywhere from Whole Foods to Walmart and Costco. 
And so by becoming a member of our community, they're able to get access to all that contact information. So they're not like trying to stalk people on LinkedIn or Google them. And then for others as well, when they need help with say growing Facebook ads or marketing, uh, we have resources that either teach them how to do it themselves, or we have expert partners that we curate along the way and to say, hey, here's a great agency that's in your price range that has been successful with other brands that we work with. And so in that way, I act as a kind of matchmaker essentially to connect founders with the partners and with the resources they need to help to overcome those obstacles. Okay, awesome. And do you have any examples of different customers that you've worked with or types of brands? If, if you don't feel okay sharing their name, what type of products, what type of markets do you feel like you guys are a really good fit for? Yeah. So most of the founders who come in are like have a product and market. I kind of say our core is between like 200K in revenue and 8 million in annual revenue and typically mm-hmm. like a one to five person founder team. And we work with founders across the board for all different things. So for instance, um, we partner with Instacart when they're promoting Black-owned businesses um, and providing free advertising credits. And we're able to get, I think, 10 to 15 of our members, I think something like $20,000 in free advertising credits through Instacart, which they were then able to leverage to grow their business. And Mm -hmm. we're actually... Um, working with them to promote women-owned businesses now too. So there's going to be dozens more that we're able to give those credits to. So opportunities like that, we've also worked with groups to promote, say like pitch competitions. And one of our members, Ashley from BTR Bar and BTR Nation now, um, it was able to find out about this pitch event through our resources, apply, um, get accepted and actually ultimately won that competition and got grant funds for her business. And so it's really servicing like opportunities and um, resources for brands to either make more money or reduce their costs. Okay. Yeah, that's great. So I wanted to double click on something that you mentioned earlier, just in that, just how you help people with things like distribution or finding a, a good co-packer or manufacturing partner, and even some of the marketing. wanted to double click on that in terms of Could we just talk about some of the, maybe some of the most common mistakes that you see in any or other area of kind of growing a CPG brand? What are the most common things that you see that maybe your members are running into? As you know, there's so many, but what I found over the years is it really dials into two things. The first is a lot of people come into the food industry from outside the industry, meaning they maybe had a career in accounting or finance or architecture, like something completely unrelated to food. And they have a product, they have something that was like really great for themselves and they want to commercialize it. And they have no idea what they're doing getting into it and make a lot of mistakes along the way that way. And then the second biggest thing is people or founders who don't begin with the end in mind. And what I mean by that is there's lots of paths that you can take to grow Um, your business in this industry, but there's a lot of pitfalls and watchouts along the way. And if you don't understand how certain parts of the industry work, you can make a lot of those mistakes. As a example, a lot of people think that if you're selling with a retailer like Whole Foods, that you're like instantly going to be like doing really well and become a millionaire. And I love Whole Foods and they're like a really great partner. One thing that I found is that, you know, for each store that we were selling in for Whole Foods, we're probably making about $1,000 in sales per month, which, 
you know, a ton of money, actually even a little bit less than that, but like, it's not a ton of money and you need to be in an entire region or nationwide with a retailer in order to actually make any real money. And so there's a certain level of scale that you need and volume to be even like break even in the food industry. And if you're going the grocery path, it could be a couple hundred stores. If you're doing e-commerce, you know, it's still like hundreds of transactions or customer orders every month or even up to thousands. And so really understanding what does it take, you know, what's your end goal of building the company and what is it going to take to get there and to build that path from the beginning? Otherwise, you're going to compromise on what your vision is. Okay. Yeah. That Whole Foods example is actually a great, great thing to talk about because, yeah, I think a lot of founders make the mistake of thinking, okay, I got that, you know, that first PO from Whole Foods. I'm good to go. Like we're set. And, um, and really what it is, it's, is the trial to put in the door. And there's a lot of things that have to go right before that actually ends up being profitable for your business or even a good path for you. You may discover that you, you actually want to go a different way. And then I think we were mentioning Whole Foods, but of course we don't want to pick on Whole Foods. They could be you know, a great partner, no doubt. We mm-hmm. just realized it was exactly that right thing. We launched in Whole Foods, we grew to, we were selling in 12 stores and just the volume wasn't quite there. And our product was really uh, niche and required a lot of education. And it's just very expensive to educate consumers in store. And that's what we ultimately found. And so what T-Square is we pivoted to understanding like we, who are our customers and where do they want to purchase our product and where are they using it? And for us, that was like while they were working, when they're like at their desk, when, you know, back when we were at the office. And so we pivoted to working with corporate offices and getting our snacks in the break rooms of companies like LinkedIn or Google. And that worked, you know, tremendously well for us. Right. Until this thing called a pandemic showed up. Yes. <laughs> to, the, to the office. Okay. Yeah. Understood. I think that that's a really good tip. Any, anything else, any other, you know, sort of mistakes that you see, you know, people making? Whew. I think a big issue with starting any business is that it requires a lot of money to be successful. And a lot of founders in our current environment take the approach of, I need to launch my company and then raise a million dollars in order for it to have any chance. And to some degree, like that's right, like it does take a lot of money, but a lot of founders jump to raising from like angel investors and venture capital firms off the bat without even kind of getting their initial product market fit figured out. And what it can do is set your company up on a path that you might not want to go on. So I've been really advocating for is that companies take a profit first model at the beginning and say, what does it take not just to get product market fit, but what does it take to develop a minimally viable company to the point where our company is breaking even or maybe a little bit profitable because while paying for the founders and all the employees and what that helps to get you Two is a point where you can take ownership of the fate of the company to decide, hey, we can either grow sustainably from here on without taking on any equity investment, or now that we've proven our product and market, we can bring on investors, but we're not in a time crunch because we're going to run out of money in three months and we just have to take out on the first check. You can be much more selective to finding the right growth partners to help you get to that next level. And so a lot of founders... Um, realize they hit this money crunch and just take on money uh, from investors and then get into relationships and situations that they regret later. Right. And I'm, I'm pretty passionate about founders finding ways to, how do you put this, to just be more scrappy when they're looking at getting that initial product into market. 
And I yes. think that there's tons of examples of these. And in fact, I think that there are more resources today if you want to start a, a CPG than there ever has been. So there's lots of different ways in, in, in order to do this. Do you have any maybe examples or particular favorite ways that you've seen founders just get that initial product manufactured or made and then start working towards that product par- market fit? Yeah, a lot of founders, there's kind of two two sides. Some founders work out of a commercial kitchen to start making their product and they're able to do small batches. Other founders take the route where they don't have access to that, either the skill set or the resources to do it. And they'll maybe work with a contract manufacturer to do pilot runs as two ways of getting started. But I think the biggest challenge is really building your customer base. And there's two really scrappy ways that I enjoy in doing that. The first is to leverage your existing network. So when I launched T-Squares, I literally went through my Gmail. I clicked export on everyone that I've ever emailed in my life and use that as our initial mailing list and said, hey, here's there's like 3,500 contacts. You know, some were friends, some I knew closer than others, but I use that as a starting point to say, hey, you've had some interaction with me. Here's a new company that I launched. Here's why. Um, check it out and drop them on a landing page to buy the product. And that's how we got our first like 100 initial orders as we started out. So that's the one way for people to say like, hey, I have like no customers. Like, how do I even get the word out about my company? Like, you can do that for com- completely for free. The second, there's a founder named Damien who runs a company called Effing Good Snacks. And great name. <laughs> so what he actually was able to do is he started building that community actually pre-launch. And so he set up a Facebook group. He started in posting about it on um, TikTok and on LinkedIn and on Facebook to say like, hey, here's a company I'm building. Here's a day in my life every single day. Here's the challenges I'm doing. Here's like the vision that I'm trying to take on in the world. And he was able to build a following of thousands of people before he even launched. He sent samples like pre-production samples to potential customers so that they could be involved in that journey. And when he launched, he was able to to sell like thousands of because he had built that audience before he even had the product ready. And so he did almost like a, he didn't quite do a pre-order, but it was like almost a pre-audience building so that people were like really excited to support him even before they tried the product. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I've kind of heard uh, people refer to that as sort of the documentary approach, you know, where you're documenting and sharing the experience of actually getting the product to market. And people love coming along for that, that journey and hearing that story. And what's cool about it is you can do exactly what he did, which is you can sell to that audience that you're building. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Let's just double click a little bit on the commercial kitchen side. So you mentioned some people don't have access to that kind of thing. Talk to a gentleman who, when he was making his first product, he actually, you know, he, he got really scrappy. I love this story. He went and he found a, it was like a camp kitchen, you know, and so... Mm-hmm. It, you know, is, is during the off months, he was able to actually use this kitchen to produce his product. And he actually, he went a long way with it. You know, he was able to use it. And then even during the camp, like camp season, he was able to do it after hours and, and weekends and stuff like that, just working with the owners of this camp kitchen. And so he was, he had access to this kitchen for like 500 bucks a month, you know, which at the time, you know, was, was all he could afford, you know, and I love that kind of story. And even there, you know, there's advantages of being involved in the manufacturing of it and the creation of the product early on, instead of just giving that to a co-packer, just in the fact that you can like, you can iterate much faster, 
right? You take that feedback that you're getting from your customers and then immediately in your next batch, right? You're applying those learnings instead of having to wait a while for a co-packer to be able to make it for you. Yeah, um, I completely do, agree. Do you have any I tips know, around, around stuff like that? Yeah, I know um, a lot of times founders have gotten started in their like local churches commissary. So a lot mm-hmm. of churches will have, you know, licensed kitchens. And whether you're like a member there or not, they're you know happy usually to help out people in their community. And so that's how a lot of founders I know across the country have gotten started there. And there's also new organizations like in Chicago, there's a group called The Hatchery. And they have a shared kitchen that you can rent out that's just brand new. It was built just a couple of years ago. And then also these private kitchens that you can upgrade to. And so a lot of these areas are becoming more and more accessible. To the idea of like starting out and making a product yourself, you know, there's definitely some pros and cons there that yep. I've experienced personally. So one, you're totally right. You can iterate on product and get feedback much quicker. The watch out that I would say is to understand what product category you're actually making. Is it cookies? Is it a refrigerated beverage? Like what that entails and understand and visit manufacturing facilities to see how it is manufactured at scale so that you can align your process with a manufacturing process for when you grow. I made that mistake because with T-squares, we ended up like designing there to give you a quick visual. They're like one inch by one inch cubes. Mm-hmm. And they're made out of these like light and puffy ingredients. And in order to get them into the right shape and form, I actually had to go to like a metal shop and have them custom fabricate a mold to make the shape. Imagine it kind of looks like an ice cream, uh, ice cube tray, but out of metal. Yeah. And like, that's what made the initial molds that we were doing. We were baking them in a convection oven. When I went to manufacturers to say, hey, we have this great product, let's scale up. None of them could actually make it because what it turned out is that there's three main manufacturing techniques for making energy bars. There's a slab method, which essentially pushes them on a conveyor belt and flattens them. There's an extruder, which like pushes them through a, a tube, pushes the batter mm-hmm. through a tube, which basically gets a lot of those like protein bars and things that you see. And then the third is what's called a rotary molder. And that's what's able to cut a bar into a specific shape. And our product require the rotary molder but there are very few companies in the U.S. that actually had that equipment, and it was the most rare, most expensive. And just huh. for instance, like if we were to get a, even if we found a manufacturer that had the base equipment, to get our shape for the mold costs like $50,000. And yeah, that yeah. was just like for a specific machine that would take six months. So all that said, right, like if I had known that going into it, it would have allowed me to make better decisions and say, hey, let's change the form factor a little bit to work with one of the other more common methods or just know that we're going to have to fundraise and maybe make this thing ourselves or buy the full piece of equipment. I think the full piece was like $400,000 total. So sure, you know, sure. that's why I say like begin with the end in mind so you know what you're getting into. Otherwise, you'll end up with costly mistakes like that. I think we probably wasted $20,000 in failed manufacturing runs from partners trying to make it other ways that couldn't. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's great. What did you ultimately end up doing? Did you have to change the form factor anyway in the end? No, we ultimately just kept making it ourselves. We started off in our, you know, thing. My mom's a chef and she had a commercial kitchen. So we were able to work out of there. So we started there, went to a manufacturer that didn't work, came back into our facility for a little while longer, went to another manufacturer, like a multi million dollar company. They make like, tons of products for big name brands they're like yeah of course it'll work 
that didn't work. It failed. And huh. we ended up back in our facility and said, hey, we're just going to need to invest here for the time being until we can raise enough money to maybe go to another manufacturer later. But at least at that point, we knew what was required. That's a great tip. I love the idea of, of people being scrappy as they do whatever they can to, to get their product out. Any other tips, you know, maybe on the marketing or distribution, you know, like let's just say yeah. I'm a brand new, I'm a brand new company and, you know, I, I take your tip and I export my, my list from Gmail, all my contacts, I reach out to them, put up a landing page. What are some of the other things that you'd recommend that somebody should do to get some of those initial sales going? Yeah, I think one of the biggest drivers I've found as you're starting out, even before you have a product or as you're developing it, is to align your product with a consumer trend or behavior that's growing. So one of the most recent examples of that is the keto movement, right? So anyone who launched a keto brand in the last five years could easily do a million dollars in their first year. Just because there's a growing wave of awareness, there's tons of free press, there are a ton of early adopters who are moving into that category, and it had a very high repeat rate where other categories were maybe stable or in decline. And so that is what I've seen be the number one <laughs> success driver of products that like grow really quickly in five years versus those that stagnate. It's aligning your product with a growing consumer trend. Now, it doesn't have to be keto. There's tons of others out there, but that's been kind of uh, number one. It'll make everything a whole lot easier for you moving forward when you don't have to fight against anything. Yeah, have that wind at your back actually pushing forward. Okay, yeah, and there's a woman called uh, April Dunford, and I actually like a lot of her stuff. She talks about positioning, and this is actually one of the things that she uh, talks about quite a bit you know, positioning your product in line with uh, some of these trends. Now, she talks about how it's not, you know, it's not absolutely necessary. And there are plenty of counterexamples of people who've done it without that, but it definitely helps, right? It definitely helps. And so, yeah, April Dunford, uh, she wrote a book called Positioning. It's great on Amazon. She also gives a lot of talks. So you can um, check her out on YouTube. Just just look up her name and she talks everywhere. Talks a lot about software. Out. Yeah, a lot about software products, but I think that these things exactly, you know, the, the same principles apply for CPG products. I think the um, other thing along with that is to position your product in relation to something else that exists on the market to make it very easy to understand. So, you know, as a consumer walking down a grocery store shelf or scrolling through Instagram looking for things, they should be able to understand what your product is in the first two seconds. And then they should be able to make a decision on if this product is for me or for them within the next three seconds. And that's about as much time as you have, either through your packaging or through your web design. One mistake that I made with T-Scores early on as well was building too big of a moat around our product. So as I mentioned, they were energy bars, essentially. But instead of making it look like every other energy or protein bar, one, we made them into bite-sized squares. Two, instead of it being in a bar, we had a multi-serve pouch with like 16 of the squares. Mm -hmm. Three, our product was called a tea-infused energy snack. And I can tell you, no one has ever gone into the grocery store looking for a tea-infused energy snack. Not yeah. even me. And three, we our flavors were things like citrus green tea matcha which to me sound good, but for someone who's never tried this product and it looks completely different from anything else that they've ever had, it's another barrier to get them to try. I had yeah. so many people doing demos who told me like, huh, that looked interesting, 
but then I just like walked by, like I didn't try because I didn't understand what it was, what it would taste like, what it would do for me. And there were all these barriers. And so instead of having like three or four points of differentiation from your competition, I always recommend brands like really ground their product in a existing category or existing behavior, like protein bars, and then pick one really strong differentiator of why you're different maybe two, but really just like one to say, Hey, we are a protein bar, but do X, Y, and Z and make your packaging, the macro ingredient list, everything else align with the category so that you're pulling customers to say, Hey, I would normally buy brand X, but yours is like brand X, but better because of this. And I care about this new attribute. So I'm going to buy yours. If someone has to say like, what is this? They're not going to buy. Yeah, no, that's that's a good tip. All right, what about what about working with you know we we talked a little bit about working with retailers like Whole Foods. What's another tip that you could you could give the audience in working with or even getting into stores or maybe a mistake that you see people make when they're trying to get into retailers? Yeah, I think there's a couple sides. I think one is to start locally, especially if you're in a, a big metro area like your Chicago or New York or San Francisco, LA. Houston, start locally in the area that you are because one, it's a lot easier to service those areas. And then two, you can concentrate your brand awareness there as well. And it's much easier to get into a store with like a local story than if you're from across the country. And it's a lot more cost effective to service those stores as well. I'd say then as you're pitching to retailers, a lot of founders go into it, and I did this myself, of pitching like your story, why you made the product, how the product is so great to eat and how it tastes delicious. But what retail buyers are looking for is how is this product going to hit me as a buyer, make or help me as a buyer meet my goals and objectives, which are around product velocity, skew assortment, on-shelf, in-stock rates, which are completely different from what a consumer is necessarily looking for. And so as a founder, you need to be able to talk the, the buyer's language. And, you know, one mistake that I see a lot of founders make too is, right, they come into the store and they're like, hey, my product's really good, so you should try it. And you put it on your shelf. What you might not realize at first glance, but when you think about it, it seems kind of obvious, is like all the shelves in the store are already completely full. Like there aren't empty slots just waiting on the store shelf right. for someone to come in. Like in order for your product to get on the shelf, you they have to replace someone else. So that ultimately means your product needs to be better than the thing that is being replaced. Otherwise, why replace it? And so as a founder, you have to be able to speak that language and say, hey, look, this competitive brand has three shelf facings, right? And like that's not doing much for additional sales. Let's try my product. We outsell this competitor, you know, three to one wherever we're on shelf. So give us a shot in this slot. Like this is where to put us. And then we can measure how we compare against that competitor or in this set. And then let that be the determining factor on giving us more shelf space or growing to other stores. And when you start talking in that language, buyers start to think like, oh, okay, like that makes sense. You're making it easy for me to do my job. So I don't have to do more work to think about The Craft Food Classroom is a comprehensive and in-depth five-part online, go-at-your-own-pace course that will provide everything needed to build a thriving food business. Each module includes a video, presentation, workbook, and quiz. 
This course teaches students exactly what they need to know to succeed in the craft food industry and avoid pitfalls and costly mistakes. Learn more at thecentral.kitchen/classroom and you can use podcast21 at checkout for 10% off anytime. Again, that code is podcast21 for 10% off. Where this product's going to fit. Sure. No, that's uh, that's amazing advice. So Jordan, I know that you've got a hard stop here. So I want to start wrapping up. I want to make sure to go through the quick fire round. I've got four questions for you. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. What's one tool or resource uh, that has helped you the most in your current position? There's a productivity software called Sunsama, S-U-N-S-A-M-A. And it's like a to-do list plus calendar builder. It's like the number one tool that keeps me focused every day. And I recommend everyone uses it. Sunsama. Yes. Okay. We'll check it out. I'm actually in the market right now. I've got so many sticky notes and random things on my desk right now. I, I need a better system. So try this out. I've been using, I, I haven't used any other system for more than four months. And this one I've been using for more than 40 years. So it works. <laughs> okay. Awesome. What is one book that you could recommend uh, to the audience? There's a book called How to Build a Story Brand by Donald Miller, and it talks through how to um, tell your story of your company and your product in a way that appeals to customers so that they understand like how the product's going to improve their lives. And it's just really powerful information. Okay. And the book name again? How to Build a Story Brand. Okay. Awesome. What's one piece of advice that you would give your 21-year-old self? Don't try to rush through life and everything doesn't have to be accomplished by the time that you're 30. I think there's this like idea that like if I don't make it to where I need to be by like 30, then like my life is going to stag, you know, like really stale after that. And one thing that I've learned is really that opportunities will arise throughout your entire life until um, the very end. And so make sure to change, adjust, take on new challenges as you grow and give yourself the grace and time to do so. Yeah, I like that one. And then you know, even try to enjoy it, you know, as you, exactly. as you try to do all this stuff, um, it could be really fun. You know, who is one person in your field of work, maybe another entrepreneur that you look up to or that you watch their stuff that you'd love to take to lunch? Ooh, there's so many of them. One that I really respect is Ali Ball. And she works as like in a very similar space from the outside. We might look like competitors, but we collaborate on a lot of things and Mm -hmm. we're both just set on helping these emerging food and beverage founders to be successful. And she does it with such amazing transparency and grace as well. And is able to like really provide impactful tips and resources for founders. We haven't gotten a chance to actually meet in person, but we've known each other for years now. So one day, once the pandemic dies down, then I hope we'll be able to do so. <laughs> yeah, Ali's cool. We, we had her on the podcast uh, a little while ago. So she's a great one. I'm curious who it. maybe some of your other ones are. I love the team at Midday Squares. The three founders there, Jake, Liz, and, and Nick. And so like they're doing awesome work. And I think what's really exciting is they've built they're building a CPG brand, but they're also building almost an entertainment and media company at the same time. Huh. And that's proven really well in building a loyal following and audience. 
Nice. Well, you know, Jordan, this has been a really good interview. Obviously, you know your stuff. You, you know, talk to food entrepreneurs, people that are doing this, you know, all the time. If you had to give some, you know, let's say some parting advice, you know, to other entrepreneurs out there, what would that be? And then maybe you could conclude by telling uh, the audience where they can get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out to you. Definitely. I think the biggest advice that I've learned is as a founder, every day is a roller coaster and it can seem like everyone's everything's working against you. Uh, build your entrepreneurial journey in a way that you enjoy every week. You might not enjoy every single day, but like enjoy every week because having this destination of like, oh, one day I'm going to sell and have $100 million. One, it might not come. And so don't waste the time on a dream that might not happen. That's really rare, like your happiness on that. And just enjoy the everyday and, and journey. It leads back to the quote that I had at the beginning of, you know, turning up the gain and turn down the pain. Like work with people who you enjoy working with because that's the ultimate measure of success. You know, I, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, and even though I know like Mike Feta, who had Manitoba Harvest, right? Like he built a company over 20 years, had a great exit. Was he doing now? Just like jumping back in and helping other founders, which is amazing. And right, money can be life-changing when it happens, but enjoy the journey that you're on as you get there because that's going to make the best impact. Okay, awesome. And how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, you can find us at bootbevy.com or active on LinkedIn as well. And just find me at Jordan Buckner on LinkedIn. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Jordan. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ken. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for Physical Product Movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening. Hey everyone, my name is Taylor Howe and I'm the marketing manager here at Fiddle. I want to jump on real quick to tell you about an incredible free resource that we put together for CPG brands. It's called Fiddle Connect. It's a curated database of over 3,000 co-packers and suppliers. You'll get websites, phone numbers, locations, categories, and more, all in one place. It's a must-have for any CPG brand, especially in the food, beverage, or nutraceutical space. And again, it's 100% free. To get immediate access, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect. We are constantly updating the database and we promise you're going to love it. It'll save you time and headaches by helping you get to suppliers and co-packers faster than ever. So again, just go to fiddle.io forward slash connect to get free access today.